welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. We said we're going to keep this short and sweet and get him on here real quick this, this morning. So with that, I give you Jess L. it was 30 years ago that I started learning the 12 steps uh, way of life and I was thinking up as, as I got up this morning I was thinking about a little incident that happened at our meeting last night here I'm putting a $500 suit on and a $100 tie and then thinking of chipping in a buck when the basket goes around that's just a small sign of my insanity Fortunately, I've progressed a little further past that and was able to remember to remind some of the other members there last evening of their beautiful opportunity, a few of which took advantage of it. I didn't see many fives, but we got to start. No, it's, uh, you can't believe the throng of people that are here with us today. Uh, there's a story in one of the old uh, old-timers AA tapes about a guy, the two people, 47 years sober, one a man and one a woman. Jerry D. from New York, is, or New Jersey's a woman, got in Texas as a guy. And he came to one of his first AA meetings very reluctantly because he hated the God business. And the guy walked up to him in one of his early meetings and said, you're having trouble with the God part. He said, I'll be your sponsor. And he took him to a meeting every night of the year, every day of the week, rather, for the next five years. And after five years, the guy said, can you let up on me a little bit? And the guy says, yeah, we'll go to six meetings a week from now on. (laughs) That is what this organization is about. I have heard and said myself so much posturing about I'm so grateful. Okay, if I'm so grateful by God, I better show it. I better pony up when the time has come. This organization is in existence because its founder was and his wife were willing to finance, to scrimp and save and finance this organization. We know at least that he put in $25,000 in the early years of this organization to keep it afloat and help it reach out to people while us phonies were putting in our dollar bills. It only took me 12 years of sobriety to wake up to some of that. Okay, but that's how sick I am. So that all those people that taught me were carrying on the real tradition. Vince and Betsy and Jack and Wallet, Marion, a whole bunch of people. 
taught me the way to live. Now, you were going to hear a talk. In fact, here's my first hour or so all written out. But you're not going to get to hear that that way. If it's uh, needed, I'll put it in the SA newsletter. Because I got, uh, as this program does, I got some uh, higher instructions. My sponsee, Harvey, that flake from Tennessee, <laughs> that hysterical person, <laughs> told his sponsee, Dan, tell Jess not to use his notes. <laughs> so, okay, I can tell advice when it's coming down the road. I've been hit by so many two-by-fours alongside the head so many times before I could get the message that now at the mere sight of a two-by-four lying someplace, <laughs> I say, God, is that for me? <laughs> if it is, could you please quickly tell me what it's about and for so that I can get into action instantly instead of having the two-by-four used? I don't require as much correction usually anymore as I used to. I'm still a very sick person. I'm still throwing out my old ideas. But I'm a lot less hesitant to get rid of them than I used to be, and it takes an awful lot less punishment. In the process, to just give you one example, I've heard words that have never been heard by a husband before and perhaps since on this planet, unless some of you choose to emulate me in my course. When I came into this program, one of the living amends that I was going to make to my wife, because there's no apology that could have made up for what I did to her. My acting out took the form of uh, sexual relation, sexual affairs and all kinds of inappropriate... Uh, when I'd walk into a restaurant, I'd come on to every... I'd come on to every woman that I saw. And often my wife was... When in cases like that, my wife would be with me. And I just, I just thought, that's just a, I'm just a fun-loving person. So I humiliated and degraded her in the worst possible way and threatened the unity and sanctity of our home at a time when we had a, our oldest uh, child was born handicapped and, uh, and uh, we had a number of other personal disasters. And I was selfishly about my own business instead of being a man. But when I came in, I said, I will make living amends and uh, when Jackie would ask for something, I'd run and do it. So about, oh, I don't know, say six, seven years into recovery, she said, Jess, I need a closet, or a shelf in my closet. But she said, don't run and put it up right now. And that's how speedily I had been making amends. But it makes the point here, and that's the other piece, there's another piece of leadership that came here. And that is, as we were riding back home last night, uh, Dan told me about a, old AA that he'd run into in the early days and he uh, Dan like all the rest of us was looking for that easier softer way and I'll tell you not I'll tell you right now buddy you ain't going to find it here today because we're talking about that hard hard way that smashes yours and my ego into bits over and over again and then any pieces that are remaining like you crack you take you take a piece of pottery and change it into powder any little piece that is uncracked is going to get stamped on hard because that is the job of this thing. But this, what Dan said is he said this guy said uh, came up to an old timer and said, hey, all you got to learn in this program is two things. And, uh, and Dan really liked that idea because uh, that sounds simple. He says, yeah, you got to stay sober. 
and you got to change every idea in your whole life and that's what this thing is about and thank God for Chuck I've listened to Chuck tapes I've got a, co a collection of his ranging to the earliest days and I've got I don't know about probably 30 Chuck tapes and about 30 Clancy tapes I've listened to some, some of them 20, 30 times but in there, there's one tape where he's in, uh, Chuck was a, a wonderful speaker. He's not as wonderful in the early days as he was in the later times. We tend to take people like Chuck, or like even now unfortunately like myself, or like Roy and other people, and we say, oh, they were, they were just born this way. And we discount all the steps that were taken to get here. And we use this as a way to create some distance from ourselves, between ourselves and other people, and to also deny our personal responsibility for what we've got to do. This is a path where we take hundreds of thousands of little steps. It's a path of progress, and, and, and perfection has got nothing to do with this path that we're on. So... Uh, Chuck uh, got out of his early period when he was just a gifted speaker and then got to be a real stemwinder speaker. This was about, I think, about nine years into the program. He made a speech, and he was in constant demand. He was speaking around uh, the valley there in uh, Los Angeles practically every night of the week and then traveling the country on the weekend so much. And uh, you know that he's dead. You can say that his son uh, it was Richard Chamberlain, the actor. So... Uh, Richard did not come by that. He came by that acting talent uh, partly, uh, you know, that way. But Chuck finished this stem wind and talk, and a guy came up to him afterwards, and he said, well, that's fine, Chuck. It was a lovely speech, but how in the hell do I get sober? <laughs> okay. What I did in uh, the talks in New Jersey and those four talks that I gave there, I told people essentially how to get sober from lust. And I spent about five, six hours talking about that subject, uh, answering questions and other things. But what this set of talks is about is about something that just occurred to me. I woke up at 3.30 this morning and couldn't sleep because I saw this thing very clear in front of me of what I had to do, and I, I benefit from all of the wisdom, accumulated wisdom of the past, and so much of the wisdom in, in the fellowship is in the oral tradition. So it's on the tape instead of written down because this stuff is so voluminous uh, that you can't write it down and then secondly there's an impact when you hear this like I've got the book A New Pair of Glasses well we listened to that New Pair of Glasses set of tapes of Chuck's my wife and I so many times that we'd memorized it practically by the time the book did come out but even had we seen the book first and then heard the tapes I know that I would still prefer the tapes because the voice can carry a ton of stuff that the, word, that the writing can't. I'm a writer, and, and I wrote a book that had an uh, amazing impact on, uh, uh, you know, there were three million copies out there. People still come up to me and, and uh, talk about reading that book nearly 30 years ago, 20 years ago. But despite that, the voice still carries more than the, word, the printed word can carry. And so that... What I realized in the, in the morning there and, uh, is that, well, first I'll tell you something else. 
Uh, I had heart surgery in 1981, and uh, and they were having trouble getting the bleeding stopped. So I was on the surgery too long, and uh, a brain that could form, formerly hold a whole book in the air, which is 100,000 words, so that every sentence in that book would know every other sentence, was severely harmed. And it took me, I had to speak from careful notes to be even be able to talk at essay things for years. And finally Harvey said, Jess, you're... He'd seen enough recovery to know, hey, Jesse, you need to put your notes away. And so I just went to minimum notes. But you occasionally see me get lost. And what that is, I've recovered 12 years or well, 14 years from that brain damage or 15. But uh, it isn't uh, still quite enough recovery to be able to always hold where I am, you know, clearly. So sometimes you'll see me stop, and that's the reason for it. Uh, but what I woke up in the middle of the night thinking is I see because all these pieces fit together and particularly what Dan said you know you people well you owe great debt to Dan you were lucky that he's here and I'm lucky that he's here he didn't like that but that's his problem he has to deal with it but what I came to see is that there is in the spiritual tradition, one of the other spiritual traditions, the principle, the words, spiritual combat. And the more gifted of the people in that spiritual discipline would occasionally meet each other and engage in spiritual combat, which is almost like uh, fencing with ideas, to plumb each other's depth of of a combination of wisdom and deep intuition and the, and a person would be clearly the winner and then I realized that's the key and that's what we're going to try here and uh, like everything else I'm willing to try anything to see if it works and if it works I'll stay with it if it doesn't work I'll switch to something else because I got my first talk it's all written out right there and uh, so two things if I fail or if you ain't good I'll pick up my thing and read my first talk <laughs> kind of like teacher but what I saw in the morning in the clear reality of that thing is we're going to have the thing here that teaches you the spiritual part of this program and it is the only way to teach it and it goes to what Dan said and that is how do I as a sponsor work with you to throw out and destroy every idea that you've got how do I as a sponsor work with myself to throw out every idea I've got. How do my sponsees, as I'm trying to sponsor them, how does that in, in, evoke in me the response, my God, what I've just told that sponsee, I've got to do. And that that talk was uh, just as much or sometimes more for me than it was for the sponsee. And I always benefit uh, so much that it seems to me that, I, that, I, that for all practical purposes I always benefit more than any sponsee I've ever had from any discussion I've ever had so that essentially what we're going to have here is sponsorship combat and I'm going to start out by doing something that did not happen in AA we followed AA in many ways I was talking to Roy the other day and he said yes he said in fact, I was telling him about this speech, and I was laughing. I said, Roy, I was really laughing this morning when I got up. He said, what's that? 
He said, I was thinking, what a funny world this is. It took a guy, a, a retiring, exceptionally introverted, very frightened, almost paranoid individual like you, and then stuck a guy like me into his life. It's like this uh, movie where they manacle this black guy and this white guy together, and they're transported in a train, and then the train crashes, and the two of them escape, and they got to help each other, and this white guy's intensely prejudiced against black guys, and the black guy's frightened to death of white people for good reason. And they got to learn to live together, and that was the way Roy and I were and are. We got our left hands tied together. In the right hand, we got knives. <laughs> and, the, and the early stages of this program, we were trying to do as much damage to each other as we could without knowing it. But what do insane people do who haven't yet changed their old ideas? What do they do when they're in touch with other people? They do what we do. So that waking up to this process that we are living in, is the first stage of our spiritual development, which is concentration. Enough concentration to be where we really are. If you want to do, well, there are, there are two assignments I'll give you right now that come out of that. When you're driving your car, I want you to focus on, it, on attempting to really just be driving your car. Don't be someplace else. We're the space cadets of the world. We are never where we are. We are always someplace else. <laughs> I was sitting in my uh, chair in my living room and my daughter, who was at that time maybe 12 or 13, walked up to me and waved her hand in front of my eyes. Dad, are you in there? And the answer was, no, I wasn't. What? She wouldn't waste a question like that if I was. So I wasn't in there. And so that the first part of this program is getting in there and being there where I am instead of being lost. So that there are two exercises to do when you're driving and, we, and they're so good because you, you spend, all of us spend a lot of time in our cars. And that, that one is number one. You see how much how and how frequently and how long you can maintain your attention on the fact that you are at 25th and Euclid right now and you're heading this way and you're watching the people and the traffic around you. And you will be amazed how... Ten seconds is a long time for that. Three seconds is, is pretty good at first. Okay, what we're looking for is, is, is hours. We're looking for minutes first, then hours, then days of awareness. And the second thing I want you to do when you're driving your automobile, uh, you've heard me talk in my tapes, uh, tapes uh, perhaps uh, those of you who listen to them, about uh, traffic sobriety, which is following the rules. Instead of getting that funny adrenaline hit, I'm not following the rule and there's a policeman that might pull me over. Okay, we're going to raise the ante another notch. I don't want you to just follow the rules. That's for guys who want to sit on the ragged edge of this program and take the chance of slipping. That's what traffic sobriety is for. Sitting on the ragged edge in this program, just being I'm sober, ain't I, as Vince used to call them, is like driving on the edge of the Grand Canyon in your motorcycle. One spill and you're down there 2,000 feet. Okay, what we're doing in this program is getting away from the edge. And what we're doing is we're getting as far away from the edge as we possibly can. That's what, that's what everything I do is dedicated is put me and my motorcycle as far away from the edge of the Grand Canyon as possible. So that when I fall, not if I fall, but when I fall, when I meet some catastrophe out there in life that is so horrible, 
and some temptation combined with it that is so tempting that I fall in soft sand and then pick up my motorcycle again and move on. And what that is about, and that assignment gives you an idea of, is compassionate driving. Okay, I want you to look always while you're driving and paying attention. Look for people who want the right of way and then give it to them. That's your service to mankind, or one of the many services you will render back to mankind for the immense service that has been rendered you by helping get you here to this room right here this morning, and to helping get you into this program. And that's compassionate driving. And your job is to give that right away to that person so smoothly that they don't even know that you did it. If they catch you at it, it doesn't count. If they wave and say thank you, I mean, you, you, you'll do that once in a while. You have to. But you say, okay, that's a freebie. That doesn't count. <laughs> but you can see somebody up ahead that is just dying to cut into the stream of traffic and you want to narrow the gaps so they don't cut into it and instead what you do, you pay attention to the person behind you. You don't obstruct traffic. You pay attention to the person behind you and you just kind of slow down a little bit and the guy says, oh, wait a minute, that guy's not coming fast enough. I can sneak in here and does and jumps in here and he doesn't think that we instead of speeding up, slowed down. That's compassionate driving. That's just one of a, of a thousand things, you know, that you need to be working on right now. Not next week, next month, next year. The next time you get in your automobile, do both those things. If you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. And these are the kind of steps that we have to take. We've been given some funny gift by the great grace of God, which is the willingness to come to these meetings. I was looking around here and one of the guys who... Uh, how many people were in that uh, breakout meeting with me uh, the other night, or last night? Let's see, let's see your faces. Three of you here. Four. This guy, let's... Yeah. There was a guy sitting, I don't think that guy, was that guy at the end of the table, he isn't, he, he sat at the end there. He isn't here, is he? No, I didn't think so. He was the guy that most needed to be here. Because he felt he was constitutionally incapable of grasping this program. And what I wanted to say to him, in fact, uh, you know, you guys tell him what I have to say. No, you're not constitutionally incapable of grasping this program for two reasons. He had tears in his eyes as he was saying it. And the fact that he was willing to say it was another sign. There was a third one and, a, and, it, and it just slept me. But those two are overwhelming. So, but even more fundamental than that, and to lay the basis for this whole thing, the first set of ideas that we have to throw out is all of our ideas about God. I don't think there's a single old idea that I've ever heard that any of you have as I deal with you about God that is right. So it's a very simple exercise that I want you to do on this, and that is I want you, when you go home, to write out the worst God you can possibly imagine. A God of judgment, vengeance, anger, punishment, constant nitpicking, pounding you, means absolutely the worst, 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 worst means absolutely the worst for you, and has nothing but your destruction and death on its mind. Okay?
And then set that sheet aside. In fact, right at the bottom, most of this is how I see God in my childish, immature, egotistical way. I won't quibble with you. I won't quibble with you that all of it is, but just write down most of it is. I want you to take a fresh sheet of paper, not the same one. And I want you to write down the most ideal God that you could conceive of. A God of nothing but mercy and justice and love and kindness and constant forgiveness and constant second chances. That would be a God that's a hundred times or a thousand times more loving than any mo- of the most loving personal father that you could imagine. And in on that sheet of paper, what I want you to write at the bottom of it is this conception of God is only a tiny fraction of the magnificence and kindness of, of the real God. But I'm limited in my vision to, to imagine it. And yet this God is the God that I can have. All I need to do is to be willing to put down the other idea of God. When I first heard that, I, you know, when uh, Vince was telling me, my old day, sponsor, he, he was an AA guy and he helped us start Emotions Anonymous. And he said, you've got a God of the hereafter. You know, somebody who decides whether I'm going to heaven or hell, a gatekeeper. He said, that's not, he said, that's not good, good to you. You need a, a God on this earth. Some God who helps you in each moment, as God did you know, to get me here and then uh, help me have the conversations I had last night and help me wake me up this morning and, and, and see a new conception. Because I was nervous about having such a prepared set of talks for you. I had the topics very carefully drawn out. But I'm a public speaker and a famous person, a famous writer and all kinds of things. And uh, I can really do things with words. I'm a rhetorician and I, and I, I can turn phrases and, and build on words through alliteration and all of the other rhetorical devices. I taught speech for some years and uh, taught under one of the great speeches, speech makers. I was a consultant to one of the nation's top speakers in my early days. And I'm a big ham and an egotistical so-and-so. <laughs> so all of that plays into doing this one way, but God kind of nudges me gently now. And said, hey, buddy, why don't you, let's do it a different way. And so we're going to do it a different way. And I've got a suspicion that I might be able, if, uh, if I can follow God's promptings well enough, and I guess if I get lucky, that I can walk out of here tonight knowing that my hope and dream for this past 30 years, which is to pass on what was passed on to me, will have been realized in the most effective way I could possibly have done it. Instead of kicking myself and say, hey, buddy, you got too carried away with your own approach and own ideas. And you weren't open enough to God and God's ideas. And you did something that looked good and sounded good, but it didn't meet the needs enough of the people that you were talking to. And just like the guy came up to Chuck and said, well, you're giving a wonderful talk, but now tell me how to stay sober. I hope that none of you at the end of the day said well you have given me a wonderful talk on spiritual programs but could you please tell me something about how to have and develop my spiritual program the basic idea for this came for something that Vince said he he came off skid row he was 10 years on skid came off skid at about 45 years old in uh, about 1945 in Ogden on 24th street oddly enough 
uh, 24th Street uh, AA Club there, and it was on the second floor. He had wine either so bad from being a wino, you don't eat very much, if anything. You live on wine. He had to crawl on his hands and knees up to a second-story AA meeting. He couldn't carry a 20-pound lug of tomatoes. When he was picking tomatoes in the, in the fields, he would have to get a half a lug full, carry it over to the weigher's desk, and then go back and get another half a lug, 10 pounds, and carry it over, and then dump the 10 into the 20 and then get his ticket for the 20-pound box. Okay, that man came into that program in that kind of shape. He was a plumber, a journeyman plumber, and uh, started to recover in this transforming process that this program is, and was transformed from a caterpillar into a butterfly. As least as much, the spots weren't very pretty because he wasn't a perfect butterfly. But I tell you, that beats flying around in those butterfly situation, even if your spots aren't quite as pretty as they might have been because uh, there's a limit to how much God can transform us and how fast and how much we can cooperate with him. But that transformation was a beautiful, beautiful thing to watch. And any quibbles we might have about his spots are immaterial to the point that he was flying, boy. He had a room in his... Uh, he had a plumbing shop out back of his house where he kept his truck and his uh, supplies, and he had a little room there, and when an alcoholic would show up, he'd give him, give him that room to live in until he could get his feet in his ground. Now, Vince had an ego problem, and he wanted you to be a pigeon of his, and when you stopped being a pigeon of his and started kind of seeing this program, he didn't have a graduation program, which an ideal sponsor does, where when you start seeing eye to eye with your sponsee, you say, hey man, um, you know, call me the rest of my life, but you don't need to call me on a regular basis, because you, you know what I know. And I've been fortunate to be able to graduate a few. Now it was hard to do. And he couldn't do that. But that's fine. He helped me do what I'm doing. And I don't know about the fact he couldn't do that. There's a lot of other things I can't do that he could do. So this is not about perfection. It's about, about progress. Okay, so when he was down on Skid Row, because I lost my chain of thought there for a moment when he was down on skid row and came off he got sober he quit drinking and it was a miracle and then he said to the guys to the sponsors he called them the 12 apostles he sat at the bargaining table with the 12 apostles and they'd say Vince can't you understand can't you understand anything see they were trying to change his mind and take it off skid row and put it on the and, and the land of limitations and put him on the path to abundant living so he said how can I get long term sobriety and they said Vince you've got to get the spiritual part and he was growing up in a big Catholic family and hated the Catholic church and he had a nun and a, and a priest for brothers they had seven kids I think in that family Eight, most of them died of alcoholism before him way before him uh, they said Vince if you want to get long term sobriety you've got to get the spiritual part so he went out after the spiritual part and he said I found there wasn't any other but his dim mind could not comprehend any more than staying sober. I spent seven years in this program from 76 to 83. I quit the affairs in 76 in Westwood, California, oddly enough, just a few miles from where Roy was in the process of thinking 
uh, you know, of, of this the early seeds of this program. I was with this woman I was having an affair with, and I saw that my wife was the person I loved more than anyone. I wanted to be with, not loved. I, she was the person I wanted to be with more than anyone in the world. Because if I loved her, I wouldn't be doing what I was doing. But she was the person I wanted to be with more than anyone else in the world. But if that was the case, why didn't I act like it? Why was I like an immature, baby-scared puppy dog running at any side of trouble with my tail between my legs like a whipped dog? And why was I willing to, to participate in that marriage and grow up and be a man and be a real person? And I said, well, I've got to find out. And I broke off that affair a day early, a three-day deal, and went back home, uh, tried to be a man. So I went through white-knuckle sobriety and uh, those were the worst years of my addiction for her because I had been robbed of the only thing, my only comforter. So I was sitting around feeling that I was practically walking in the footsteps of Christ and yet I was a miserable, rotten human being <laughs> filled with fantasy. I'd lay down beside her at bed at night fantasizing having sex with some other woman. There's nothing more corrupt than that. People think acting out is measured in the degrees of corruption of the things that you do out in the outer world. That has got nothing to do with it. It's the minute I am absent from any of God's children. By my saying, you know, I, God, what you're going to get for me in the next X minutes I don't like. There's pain here and I don't want it. I'll create a better world for myself. That is, that is the big one. So uh, I don't defer to the rapists, the pedophiles, the other people that are more, more despised by society. I don't defer to them and say, well, you, yeah, you're obviously worse than me. There ain't anybody here worse than me. And I would argue that to my last breath, that I was as bad as you can get. So that what I had to find then uh, was the spiritual part, and that was offered me in 1983 when my wife had enough strength under her belt to say to me it's get an essay or get out and I, she gave me a folder an essay folder and two names to call I called the first one his name was Kent he said Jess it's lust it's what's in your head that's killing you and those were the most beautiful words that I've ever heard before or since because I had spent 17 years in 12 step programs knowing something was very wrong with me and that I needed to find what that was. And here it was offered instantly as an answer. But I also, because of 17 years of, of close sponsorship and careful study in this program, I also knew that I never needed to lust again with God's help one moment at a time, one day at a time for the rest of my life. So I had all of the pieces except like when you're putting a jigsaw puzzle to, together and there's one piece missing, you know, and that was, for all practical purposes, the last major piece of the puzzle that I needed to get what I needed. Okay, um, what we're going to do is we're going to interject. Uh, I've got a lot of uh, stuff that I need to tell you, but we're going to we're going to have some sponsorship combat because some of you are getting a little sleepy, and uh, because I'm just droning on here, and it's hard for you to. To, to grasp some of the things I'm saying, uh, you'll be able to grasp them better five and ten years from now uh, when you listen to these tapes again because I couldn't have grasped what I'm saying to you uh, 25 years ago.
So we're going to have a little sponsorship combat. We're going to kick it off right now. What I, uh, the principal thing I do for this fellowship and the place I learn and the way I help somebody go from somebody as sick as I was to get rid of their old ideas is that's the guts of this program and, it, and you can't put it in little pieces and that's what Harvey was telling me through Dan because he knows what I can do when I'm one-on-one with him. It's like Larry Bird says, when the ball is, when the game is down to the last few seconds, I want the ball. It is that confidence that he knows he can do better with that ball than anybody else on that floor. Okay. When we got a sponsorship situation, the game is down to the last few seconds and, and the game's on the line. I want the ball. Because I've practiced for 30 years to let God work through me to sponsor you and sometimes uh, you know a lot of times my sponsees are very surprised at what I say to them Uh, they're they're not near as surprised as I am to hear what I'm saying to them (laughs) and why is that because all I am is a hose pipe that God speaks through and I've become a increasingly reliable and useful hose pipe to God so what what I need from you now is each of you are facing the kind of dilemmas my sponsees throw at me each day in the telephone. Okay? I want, uh, this day will go if you guys have got the guts to be honest enough to give me the tough ones. Because, you know, it, it, you say, well, I won't look good. Well, I, I, I deal with that all the time, my fear of not looking good. But forget it. Because your life is at stake here and my life is at stake here. Because I'm a very sick person and I got a whole bunch of ideas I got to get rid of. So I need to sponsor a lot of people to help me be alert to those ideas I haven't yet seen that I have to get rid of so I can get rid of them. So your job is to save my life here today. And I don't, like Clancy says, I don't want any of you to walk out of here with the feeling that you didn't do what you could do to help save a guy from, or gal from becoming, from losing their sobriety. That's why Clancy is the kind of sponsor that he is. He doesn't ever want to have that thing unsaid that might have saved the sobriety of that person that he talked to. Okay, my sobriety is on the line here, and your job is to save it. So who's got the first, who's got the first sobriety dile- or sponsorship dilemma that you're facing in your life right now? Yeah. Somebody got to help. There was a person that you were talking about last night in a small group, and I didn't quite follow. I mean, how do you reach, start to reach that person? I think you were saying that there was honesty in what he was saying, and so he really is honest, can be honest with himself. He's not constitutionally capable of being honest. But I don't know. I don't know how to get through to him. Okay, I'll need to repeat your question so that they, they go on the tape. And if I don't uh, get the true spirit of your question in repeating it, then please uh, correct me because it's very important. Uh, there was a guy sitting there last night saying, I don't know, that I think I'm one of those uh, constitutionally incapable of being honest with myself. And I know Chuck has said in his talks that, that he wishes, that's the one phrase in the whole big book that he wishes Bill hadn't said. Uh, other people think that uh, that Bill shouldn't have said rarely, and he should have said always. But uh, he, uh, Chuck talked to Bill about that, and Bill said, "No, I said rarely because alcoholics are so cantankerous. If you say they always, always, if, you know, we'll never see a person fail who has d- done this. They'll say, well, bye, guys, I'll show you one.'" 
and, and, and there's a couple other places like that. But that's the one that, that Chuck feels shouldn't be in there because he said so many people that he's talked to are sure that they are the ones who are constitutionally incapable, just as that young man was. And the answer is, we don't, we can't hold, I can't hold his destiny in my hand, but I do have a responsibility to say to him the best I can say to him. And that is that this God that I just had you describe, this kind and loving and great God, will not put us down in a situation without giving us a road map. The, the God of my understanding will never make us be lost. He always will give us a road map and all we got to do is hunt around in the car and we find it. This is why the minute we need sponsorship, there's a sponsor right there at our elbow ready to teach us. That's the kindness and the greatness of, of God. Okay, so I say these things to the guy. Hey, uh, the God of infinite kindness that I know and that we see exemplified in the transformed lives of everybody in the room, no one is left out. No one. And your and in addition we have the benefit of his actions, it's the tears in his eyes and his honesty admitting that, you know, here's the big shot coming in from out of town and he's willing to say that in front of the big shot, you know. Okay, that shows a lot of gr God's grace moving there. And that's what I would be saying to him. Okay. Next. Yeah. Uh. My sponsees, after a couple of months, stopped calling. Okay. And uh, the first one, okay. The second one, I understood. But after the third one, I started getting a little self-conscious. Uh, I'm wondering how, what extent I should go to to pursue them. Wonderful. Okay, his sponsees, after a little time, stopped calling. And then he, uh, he's having a lot of trouble. And the question is, what extent should he go to pursue them? And the answer, there's two answers to the question. The first answer is... Uh, when we uh, formed the SA group in uh, Bozeman, Montana, uh, there's another guy in the group who um, uh, came out of a, a mental unit, uh, uh, and uh, he has uh, he's over in that borderline area where uh, it takes him a long time to get hold of some ideas. And we were working there together, and both nuttier than fruitcakes. And he said, "Why aren't people staying, Jess?" And I said, Bill, I said, who would be insane enough to come in and like what we have? I said, as we get more to offer, there will be more people who stay. Now, the same goes for sponsorship. Is uh, As you get more and more to offer, this is a program of attraction. And people are in the early stages of being attracted to you or the, you wouldn't, they wouldn't even raise the issue of being sponsored. But the answer is, you haven't thrown enough of your old ideas out yet to be attractive enough for them to stay. Now, another part of it is, is that not everybody wants this program. The old AAs taught us, I think they did it, because uh, who can comprehend what they might have taught me, because I was so insane then. But as near as I can recall, they were saying that AA was for, pe for alcoholics who needed help. And the answer, and so I thought the answer to alcoholism was AA. No. AA is an answer only for about one out of ten alcoholics who want a spiritual answer to their problem. Nine out of ten alcoholics do not want a spiritual answer to their problem. What is Sexaholics Anonymous? There's an awful lot of sexaholics out there, 
Don't let that distract you at all. That's got nothing to do with anything. What Sexaholics Anonymous is, it's a spiritual answer for those people who want a spiritual answer to their sexual addiction and only, I would guess, somewhere in the 1 out of 20 or 1 out of 40 sexual addicts want a spiritual answer to their problem. The fact that you and I are here misleads us and we think if us idiots, you know, can see this and <laughs> grasp this, what in the, why in the world can't all the other idiots grasp it? And the answer is we, in so thinking that way, we do a thing that is very common, which is grace in the gift that was given us. Uh, most people who have athletic talent, for example, can't figure out why other people aren't talented athletically, right? You know, why can't they keep the ball, you know, keep, why can't they bounce a basketball, for example? It, it's because I don't have that athletic talent. Okay, I got talent in the classroom, but not on the athletic floor, and I desperately wanted to be an athlete. Okay, that was a, a God's gift to each of you who are athletic. My ability, other abilities are God's gift to me. But I see people very hesitant to take credit for the gifts that God has given them. So the gentleman back here has been given the most precious gift that God could ever offer someone, which is this program. I feel sorry for poor people who aren't sexaholic and, and want a spiritual answer. Because we are the most blessed people in the world. We are, in some of the spiritual teachings, it talks how the lowliest are raised to the most high. That's us. We are the lowliest who are raised to the most high. That The idea that a bunch of sex pervert weirdos like me would be seated at the right hand of God is preposterous. But that is what is slowly transpiring for each of us as we move along in this program of those who are willing to do our work. Now, uh... I have a very fiendish mind, uh, being a sexaholic, and uh, as the fellowship, I started a whole bunch of conference calls at various stages in the fellowship. In the early stages of the fellowship, I didn't have a sponsor. After 30 days in the fellowship, Roy says, get out of here. Uh, my wife had uh, said, on the, as we were talking on the phone, she said, my gosh, she said, you with your experience in the fellowship and Roy with his uh, genius for seeing things, you're the Bill and Dr. Bob of this program. Tell Roy that. She says this right as I'm talking to Roy on the phone. And I did tell him that. The next call I got is he said, I'm, I don't want to sponsor you anymore. Uh, and uh, that's beautiful. Because uh, remember, the two guys tied together with their left hands with, uh, with knives? Okay, that's what we, he and I have gone at each other with knives for, lo, these 13 years. And there's many times I've made him wish that he would never have been born. <laughs> and when I was doing a, another spiritual program that makes you do a whole bunch of exercises where you had to talk about the people you resented or were angry at and stuff like that I told Harvey I said that, that man out there in California is worth a million dollars to me because I was constantly resentful angry jealous envious everything because I want to sit at the head of the table I see it in the chip meetings when Sylvia and I get our, our 13 year chips Everybody in that hall is going to want to be up there having 13 years of sobriety instantly. You know, well, the only way you can get 13 years of sobriety is over 13 years. <laughs> but about, um, let's see, eight years ago, I had the idea for an old-timers call, conference call of old-timers, people with over five years of sobriety, where we would talk to each other on the conference call once a month. It's the first Tuesday of each month. 
So the first Tuesday of each month at 7 o'clock Mountain Time, just think of us, we're going to be in the old-timers' call. But I had a sneaking hunch that some of us, as we progress along in our sobriety, we're going to do one hell of a lot better than others of us. And the dirty linen was going to be showing as the years would go by on that conference call. Because we had crabby old Ed in Bozeman who died, and he, after 24 years of AA sobriety, he was still crabby. So he did, his voice didn't get clear and ring like a bell in sobriety. He, got, he was, I'm sober, ain't I, for a, about for 24 years, and you can hold that position a long time. And we've seen it happen in the conference call, is uh, some of us are able to do things in sobriety that others of us can't do. That's so painfully obvious that some of the people don't, the old-timers don't participate anymore. And so that the point isn't, it isn't just time in this program that counts. It's what you do with the time that you have. Okay, so to the gentleman in the back room, that again is, is this is a lifelong job. Just what Dan said. How do I get rid of every, how do I throw out every idea I ever had? Well, that's obviously a long, long time. Okay, next one. Yeah, the guy in the t-shirt. Then you next. Um, along the lines, uh, he pretty much stole my question. Um, now I realize we can't make anyone get this program or want this program. But along the same lines, I've been asked by two people to sponsor one, um, one who does call, um, one who doesn't. And the one who does call, I'm so tempted to give advice to him but, of course, I don't... One thing my sponsor keeps telling me is that he doesn't know anything. And yet, by so doing, he tells me what I need to hear. Right. How, how do I know the difference between my own, my own ideas, you know, as you just alluded to, and what my sponsor is supposed to hear? Wonderful. That's, we'll stop right there. Uh, how do you know your difference between your own ideas and what the sponsor is supposed to do, which is what God has got for him? And the answer is very simple. Uh, what sport are you best at? Uh, good question. Not many. What activity? What activity are you best at? Let's see. I'm, pro- I'm singing. Okay, is a, a singer. Okay, how did uh, you had a talent, but you also practiced? Yes. Okay, and that's the answer to this program. People hear me today and they say, "Wow, what a tiger!" But the answer is, uh, all you, it, and, and and most people don't want to do this. But this is so important in this program. You go back and buy the tapes from Glenn from the 1984 uh, Salt Lake City Conference, the first conference we had, and you'll hear at the end one of the most awful things you've ever heard. <laughs> Here's this gorgeous gal, young gal up front, cheerfully saying, oh my God, I've found SA and my life is so beautiful. And here's little Rick from, from Arizona sitting by me. We were buddies. And he said, Jess, he said, you know, she went on and on with this thing and she was so grateful and she was so frightened and... He said, yes, I want to hold her hand. I said, well, let's go. So here are us two idiots. Go up to the front of the room, sit on either side of her, and hold her hand. That's where I came from after seven, well, by then 18 years of 12-step programs and one year, a little over a year of sexual sobriety. Okay, so the point is, how are we going to learn? Okay, if I'm going to sit around and wait till I can sing that perfect note, before I start letting sounds out, what the heck's going to happen? Nothing. So we put it out and then feel, oh boy, I got egg all over my face. I look foolish. But we've got to be willing to... How are we going to learn the most powerful, precious skill there is, which is being a, a 
a, clear, a continually clearer channel for God's will, but by falling on our face, being willing to stick our neck out and do it over and over again. You see? Okay, now, is there, was there part, another part of your question that... Um, well, well, I, I, I was just, it's just more anecdotal because I listened to the uh, to your talk last um, you know, last year in Baltimore, and one of the things you said was for sponsees to pray if they get sponsees. And I yeah. didn't know whether it was right. To yeah, no, you're doing it just exactly right because the answer is start sponsoring as quick as you can find somebody who's attracted to you to sponsor you. We were we were going to a Thanksgiving meeting in Helena in the early days, and my books had just been out, and I was famous. So I was thinking what I was going to say to, in this AA open meeting. And uh, Vince says, boy, I'm so anxious to get there and hear the newcomers. And I thought, why? Yes. Well, he said, because they're so close to the problem. Okay, that's why you newcomers can be better sponsors than I can in, some, in certain ways, in certain areas. And I co-sponsor a lot of people who have a primary sponsor who's rather new in the program, but they get some stuff from them uh, and some stuff from me. Uh, but you've got an advantage. You're close to the problem. You can identify with it much better than they can. So uh, what this organization needs is a lot more uh, uh, sponsorship. And then I would advise all of you to have a sponsee. you always got to have someone who is your, a sponsor. Everybody that you... You've got to have a sponsor you look to, and he is a person who should be under sponsorship. But uh, but then you'll also talk to other people. Okay? Now, let's see this fellow here. Uh, now I'll get you next. Spirituality question, hopefully. Um, what's your response to a sponsee who believes that the essay spirituality is in direct conflict with his faith tradition? With his what? His faith tradition. Okay. Christianity, yep. He believes that he needs to leave SA because it's okay. That okay, that's a wonderful way to get away from Sexaholics Anonymous. It's just a tremendous way. <laughs> oh, excuse me, I didn't repeat the question. The question is, uh, a person felt that his spirituality was in conflict with SA's spirituality. Okay, it's a lie, so we'll deal with that level first. Beside being a wonderful way to get away from SA and face the music about your addiction. I've had a number of experiences along those lines. One of the most telling is I had the most unbelievable spiritual experience that we can have in, in Western society in 1974. And I said to the people in that spiritual tradition, hey, I've still got some problems. And they said, well, you must not have the victory. And uh, I said, well, I thought I did. But they said, no, because if you have the victory, you don't have any more problems. Now, there's um, in that same spiritual tradition, there is a story of a man who founded that tradition more than any other, uh, than the divine person at the head of it, who had all kinds of, or had a specific problem that he carried all of his life. And uh, it was evidently very embarrassing to him. He doesn't say what the problem was. So that obviously, and if you take the, guy, the writings of that one guy out of their spiritual tradition, you haven't got much left. So that the person who says, if you got the victory, you don't have any more problems, is actually contradicting their whole spiritual tradition. And looking at it in another spiritual way, I have never seen, and I'm uh, thoroughly familiar with Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism, and I've got some acquaintance with Tao. I haven't found anything in any one of them that's in any contradiction to what we believe. 
In fact, if anything, my uh, essay spirituality has helped me see finally each of those things in a far clearer light than I could see. And as my essay spirituality has developed, I am able to see each of those great spiritual traditions in a clearer way. But essentially, a person who puts that question to you, I think, is, uh, is, has, is said, I can't bear the truth of what I'm finding here. That I've been told this is a cult, and that kind of talk is going around, and I, I know people in another spiritual tradition who have, some of them who have a real difficulty with uh, 12-step stuff being labeled as a cult. And, and it is very uh, re- simple why that would be understood, because uh, here are these church basements in the country, occupied by guys who go to you know if you say to somebody I go to three meetings a week they yawn at you if you if they say you if you say they go to five meetings a week yeah that's interesting if you say you go to seven they say oh boy that's that guy's fairly serious okay they uh, we use rooms for people who go to one meeting a week and think that's something (laughs) <laughs> we'd laugh them out of the park <laughs> because the kind of overhaul we're talking about you see because we're so sick we need so much help that we put ourselves right into kindergarten which is where we belong and everybody else belongs there too now I come to see because I've gone down all of those different uh, mainstream Western Europe spiritual paths all of them and, and, and I speak only with the utmost faith and belief in each of them because the kind and loving, loving God that I know has a spiritual program ideally suited to each person's feelings and, and sensitivities and has a person instantly available to teach that program to it the minute they become ready to teach. In fact, a book that I'm writing uh, uh, tells the story of a, a man or woman up at one of these early distant uh, warning radar stations, early warning radar stations, where there's 40 people in, say, a highly, a totally isolated situation. They're supplied by helicopter. And one night, some man or woman goes out and makes the kind of jerk out of themselves that we're used to doing so frequently, and gets up in the morning just hating themselves to their very guts for what they did. And they say to their mate on duty, I've got to find a new way. And their mate says, I know a better way. And I can teach you. And they say, well, why haven't you ever told me that before? And Because you never asked, and until you asked, I couldn't teach. And I believe that that's true for everybody in the world. And that is, to me, why there are the varieties of religions and the varieties of religious experience. And each of them, each of them will carry us home. But none of them are bulletproof against our ego. Our ego will destroy anything, absolutely no anything, no matter how beautiful it might be. Okay, we had a fellow right over here. Do you think it's necessary to write the steps down in order to be working them? Okay, do I think it's necessary to write the steps down in order to work them? And the answer is, uh, I don't think there are any rules. Uh, some people need to write them out and, and, and God will guide you. I don't see that there's a great benefit either way. But again, it's whatever comes to you, respect it and do it. Like uh, my sponsor has never, and sponsorship has never asked that. But when I came in this program and I had no sponsor, and I I can't conceive to you, and we'll give you some idea gradually during the day as this thing unfolds, because I'll give it to you in bits and pieces instead of all at once as I had originally intended to do. Uh, 
uh, I came in and it was immediately with, without a sponsor because I'm the kind of jerk that I am. That's simple. I got what I deserve. Okay. So what do I do for sponsorship? So uh, one of the things I organized, a conference call, where we did our sponsorship once a month. There's a monthly conference call. I'm a very orderly person. So in January, we have our first conference call. And the first step, I set it up in December. We each write out our first steps and send them to the other four or five people on the call. So we each got the four or five first steps of each of the people in the group. And then we talk uh, on the conference call about it, about our own first step. And we did that on the way through the 12 steps. Harry from Portland was one of the guys who was in that group. I've got the file folder. I've got a bunch of file folders here. One of those is that early step study conference call. I actually I formed two of them, one before, even before Harry was in the program. I was trying to unite also the people from the scattered parts of the nation. I called central office and got some names. I, you know, I said, I need names of some other people around the country who've been in the program. And, and there, were, there was a woman from out uh, in New York State that joined that group for a while, and, but it petered out because there wasn't enough sobriety to keep the group going. And, and again, that goes back to the answer to the fellow in the back room. Um, we can't shortcut sobriety. We want to leap into instant sobriety, but that's not the way it goes. It's gradual. All spiritual programs are gradual. But us maniacs, do we like the idea and understand the idea of gradualness? It's instant gratification, instant success, instant everything for us. That's what a baby's about, is instant. What's adulthood about? About delayed gratification. I do something in 20 years from now, something good will happen. That's not a sexaholic mentality. <laughs> you know, tomorrow is way too late. Even this afternoon is way too late. Okay? Yeah. Um, you were talking about uh, really two things that are kind of related. One was, um, you know, I heard it said, you know, something you were saying, like, just don't bust and change everything. That's another way of saying one of the things you said. The other thing is about changing the conception of my higher power. Um, I'm, in, I'm in another fellowship fellowship, and this woman was sharing how she came in, and which is typically a response in this program. A person comes in, and this is definitely my situation, and, and things go downhill, not yeah. uphill. Yeah. And, you know, Roy says... Uh, you know, we got to go down and go up or something like that. And uh, she said that, you know, she had a certain religion and, and and she had to completely throw it away and get God through people. And um, and then let that religion kind of, or spirituality, bounce back at her a different yeah. way. Yeah. And I'm, I heard her, and what she said is that... Um, she had like a total nervous breakdown in recovery because she had been trying to go straight to God like a satellite link yeah. and was a totally isolated right. person. Yeah. And that was my experience. You know, coming into first AA, I had just a complete total nervous breakdown. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had, I had relied on this satellite link and it was severed towards the end of my drinking. Yeah. And uh, I had no connection with any sort of uh, people. Yeah. And... Um, the guilt I felt over walking away from that conception, which is yep. incredible, as bad as lust is, that guilt yep. is even worse sometimes. Yep. Yep. And, more, and right now, what I've decided to do is do it a whole other level, and just walk away again, and just and then let it, you know, bounce back. So what I'm getting at is, that, I mean, lust is 
lust is a, a, a problem, but for me, guilt and shame over walking away from that, you know, this, this long religious tradition. And, and, you know, that thunder and lightning, that was for me last yeah. night. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, um, and, 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 and adding on to that, I see a lot of other people, most people in SA especially, having that problem with the addiction to a higher power of some sort. It could be a person, it could be a therapist, it can be a religion. I mean, I haven't gotten over that guilt and that shame that much myself. How can okay. I, I get you. help that other person? Okay, the, the answer there is very simple. It's, uh, his question was uh, two or three parts to it. Number one is, uh, it seems like when you come in here, things get bad, uh, worse, and then get better. And then the guilt about leaving uh, an established spiritual tradition and the guilt of uh, how God will handle this. And then also that in this program, it seems like we have to find that God through people. And uh, the answer, of course, is uh, they're all difficult questions, but at the center of it is this conception of God. The people who have uh, a punishing God, only if you have a punishing God can you feel guilty. That, that, that God demands certain things of you that are beyond your capabilities. Uh, on, and a beautiful example of that is I was teaching uh, my class and we always sat in a, in a circle. And I was saying that one of the difficulties I had as a teacher was that I... I, I set too high a standard for my students and then expected them to jump and meet that standard. And I said, that what I'm learning more and more, and it's a basic principle of psychology, I'm a psychologist also, a basic principle of psychology is, is Skinner's training of, uh, through successive, shaping through successive approximation. And what that means, if I'm going to teach high jumping, I'll set the bar maybe this high so that we can all jump over it. And then I'll divide you up into groups with the ease with which you jump. And then for each group, we'll just take the bar up gradually. And we'll not move it up just enough to stretch you, but not to make it impossible. Okay. That is a conception of God also. That a kind and loving father would do the same thing. Okay. And I, as I was using that example in the circle in my class, we were sitting around the circle. I said, for example, I would start with a bar like here so that all of us could jump over it. Anybody here have trouble jumping over that high? No, okay. But I saw this student kind of stick his head out of the circle looking to see how high I had drawn this thing. What the heck is that about? Well, when he got, I got up and walked out of class, he had cerebral palsy. So he couldn't jump this far. So for him, it had, it, it had to start here if I was teaching him high jumping. Okay, if I'm a kind and loving father... That's what I would do for my kids. The one who had cerebral palsy. I have a cerebral palsy daughter. The one I would have do for my cerebral palsy daughter would be that high. Okay, if God is bigger than a human being and is more kind than me, which I suspect is the case, <laughs> <laughs> then there isn't too much punishment in store when we can't jump the hurdles. You know, so that it, the, 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 it, it is the hardest topic of all um, because I left gradually. As I practiced this program, I left a very strong spiritual and established spiritual tradition and there was some guilt at what I was leaving because of the old. But I kept going where 
there was help. And I kept going where there were God's children. And I kept seeing and finding God through you. So that my understanding of God is, while I've done that definition thing that I asked you to do, I did it in the early days of my program, the thing that's put the wheels on that wagon is experiencing God through you. Now, I don't ask that you try this on somebody else, or but I ask that you do it yourself as a way to help yourself along in this process. To me, the epitome of our program comes particularly when there's a group of us hearing a, a first step. I see a bunch of twisted, terrible, crazy, awful sex perverts being angels, lifted from where we are to angelhood instantly. I have never, ever heard in all of the first step meetings that I've ever participated in, I've never, ever heard anybody say or do anything that wasn't godlike. And to me, more than anything, it shows uh, what all the spiritual traditions teach. We are made in the image and likeness of God. And occasionally show it. In fact, and this is one of the dilemmas, each is uh, another word for this, uh, spiritual word for this is the the word enlightenment. We We are born enlightened. We use our enlightenment to look for our enlightenment. Our enlightenment was what brought us to our first meeting. Our enlightenment is what kept us there. Your enlightenment which will be what will keep you here today through this pick and shovel work that we're doing. I mean, some of you will not be able to handle it today, and that's fine. Because we're asking pick and shovel labor, the hardest kind of labor there is, which is to see ourselves as we really are. Now, Vince's prayer on that was, God help me get my mind a little further off skid row today. Just a little. One of the theologians I was listening to on tape a long time ago said one morning in seminary he was seized with a fit of zeal, religious zeal. And he was looking out over the Atlantic in the darkness in the morning and prayed, God show me me as I am. And he said pretty soon there was a pile of saliva and tears there on the floor. And he said, I never prayed that prayer again. Because God, my, God of my understanding is so kind that all the insight he gives me today is just as much as I can deal with it sometimes. <laughs> a, 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 a smidgen more. Like when I get walloped good. And uh, there are plenty of times when I've been walloped good. You know, terrible times. Uh, I just reel from the blow, but yet through God's grace, keep coming back. I would tell my problems to the old-timers in, in AA. I had these terrible problems and then demanded immediate, positive answers. And what did they tell me? Some stupid platitude. Keep coming back. Can't those idiots hear how, how much I'm hurting? Can't they know how much I need an answer? Keep coming back. I want to kill them. But that's how hard it is at first. And now what I say to you, keep coming back. You say, Jess, you're just getting even. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Does that get that? Okay, let's okay, let's let's that's this is the most, but this is probably this one of the, the central thing because uh, yeah. Um, 
there was something that somebody said, and uh, I'm taking someone else's right here, but really it kind of shows me how I can use my past God and spirituality. Actually, two things. One was I was in an AA meeting, and a guy was using the Bible to justify his drinking. Right. And then, and then I was in an essay meeting, and this guy was saying, if I act out, God will forgive me. Right. And, uh, you know, that's that, that second one is, yeah, God might may forgive him, but he may never forgive himself. And he, you know, the thing is, I, I, I've got to put that I'm powerless over lust before yeah. anything. Yeah. And, you know, that, that part of how my past spirituality can kill me is really... Okay. Okay. There's a there's a there's a tool that you need to use on this that is the most powerful tool that, that is, and all of the spiritual programs face the same dilemma, and that is it is impossible to talk about this program. So therefore, we will talk about this program. It is impossible to describe God. Therefore, we will talk about a description of God. The, this, because this is why uh, your question was so important. Because this is at the very core of the paradox that a spiritual program represents. God is abstract, so big, that the Jews, the early Jews, did not even use the word God as my understanding. They did not speak the God's name. They were so awed by it. Okay? And, but, now, but we have to talk. So we will talk about it. And oddly enough, when the Jews codified the Talmud, the Talmud is, for those of you who don't, well, in my understanding of it, is uh, simply a code of, of behavior uh, and practice of the religion. And uh, the Talmuds had sprung up individual cities around the w- world in those early days. And so in 1400, they called the learned rabbis together at uh, Alexandria to codify the Talmud. And the test for a rabbi to appear at this gathering was was... was one of the tests would be a rabbi who was so focused on his rabbinical work that a naked woman could walk through the room where they were doing their rabbinical studies on the Talmud. He could look at her and say, what a beautiful woman, and go back to his rabbinical studies. You see, with no lust. And, uh, but you see, again, here is a word, uh, you know, and that tradition is the oldest tradition in western civilization in the Jewish tradition here is a a God is, we can't say the name we got a whole bunch of Old Testament books that were written about it well if we can't say the name we can't talk about it we can't describe it what are we doing and the answer is that's the paradox and so that the way you deal with the paradox is you come at it from one side and you come at it from the other side and you catch it in between someplace. It's like reading between the lines. It's like how we read a love letter in the early days of being in love. We read how long it was, how short it was, which way the stamp was put on. We read everything about it. And this is how we learn spiritual stuff, is we we come at it from every way we can. And then we pierce. Now, we don't pierce to the heart of things because we can't. Uh, only one tradition uh, teaches that we can the, the, the Buddhist tradition that you can literally become Buddha on this or we have Buddhahood on this life and be enlightened and the writings of those people are, are fascinating to read when a person reaches enlightenment 
And one of the hallmarks of enlightenment is laughter. And this is one of the things that is so striking about listening to Chuck's talks. I listened to his late talks for years before I had the wisdom to go and look at his early talks. And in his late talks, he's laughing. I went back and listened to his early talks, and his early talks aren't very good. They're just r- rhetoric. But they also, he isn't laughing. So Chuck didn't start laughing until about uh, 15, 20 years into recovery. But there are two bags that we carry. Our bag of conceptions about the past and what it should have been. And our bag on the other shoulder of conceptions about the future and what it should be. When we put down both bags, we're enlightened. And we laugh. You see? So it is the answer beyond any questions. And the only, uh, it's, we can wrestle with that only if we understand the immensity of the answer and are content with the uh, uncertainty that, that is involved there. So that we, we get peace by knowing this is beyond us. So we'll kind of come at it from both sides and we'll experience it indirectly. It's, it's like how, an, how a scientist knows uh, the presence of an atom. You can't see the atom, but they can see the scratch on the film where the atom went. So they know it, there was, it was there. So, uh, I, I, uh, is there a timer back there? You have wisdom for me? Five minutes? Okay. Yeah. I've got two questions. One, you talked about um, sponsoring people. Um, I'm the only woman in our group. I've got a sponsor, but I'm wondering in terms of sponsoring people... Um, we've got newcomers coming in that are eager to learn. Right. Okay, uh, that's, a, that's a very good question. And, and it, it is a question of women, uh, of women getting sponsors and then women being sponsees and she's the only woman in the group. Uh, that's a delicate line and it's very difficult. Excuse me, how much sobriety do you have? Okay. Um, uh, she's, you know, got 60 days of sobriety. So, what I see is this, is that because of my addiction, I have to really stay away from uh, sponsoring women because a part of, so much of my shtick was making women dependent on me and being involved in that, uh, I hate the word codependent, but de- involved in, the, in dependency because codependence suggests that somebody else has got a part in this thing and they don't have this guy has got the part in the thing. So what I, the way we deal with women in Bozeman is I say, okay, here's some women that can sponsor you. Uh, like right now, I'm sending them to Robin in North Carolina. Uh, and, uh, and if she doesn't sponsor them, she knows uh, I, uh, SA women that can. Okay, but I'm thinking like for me to sponsor Right, yeah. No, and I, no, no, so that's the sponsorship side. Now, for her to sponsor people, uh, the way, the way to, to do that is say, well, uh, because I'm a woman and you're a guy, I think you should have a guy sponsor. But I can talk to you about this program and share, and I want to do what, would, what we call joint sponsorship. Uh, joint, not in the sense of the central responsibility or co-sponsorship. And there are a number of people that that, that I co-sponsor, like Sing and Mark from New Jersey is a, uh, uh, has got a sponsor, Phil, in New Jersey, and then I talk to him. So that gets rid of some of that because then you aren't in that kind of life or death relationship that the sponsor sponsee has. Another way to do it is is to put out the word into other groups. So what town are you in? Columbus. Columbus. 
okay, put out the word to groups and towns near there. Okay, I'm a woman who would like to sponsor women, um, and, um, and and or and or at least talk to other women. So set up a telephone network. Uh, that's another place where a group you can have a, con- a woman's group with a conference call. But uh, we sexaholics are pretty toxic, and some of some of our members uh, are pretty bad for the women to be around, and they say that. And some of them are saying to me, okay, Jess, I can talk to you, but uh, I can't talk to this or that person in our group because it kindles too much stuff. The other question I had is you talked about meetings, 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 you know, seven meetings a week, we have one okay. in Columbus. Okay, she says meetings, 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 and then they have one in Columbus, and the answer is start another one. And the same people who go to that one uh, go to the other meeting. And then you start a third one, and the same people go to that, go to another meeting, and there's a little... But, but you need more than one meeting a week. Now, also, when I started out in Emotions Anonymous, about one meeting a week was all I could get the, could get the benefit of. Most guys who go to 90 meetings in 90 days in AA, hell, they could be sitting at the circus for all they're getting out of those meetings. Uh, but at least it just keeps them away from the bars and out of trouble. Because it takes a while in meetings before you can learn what's happening at the meeting, with all due respect. Now, I don't. I don't mean to, to. I don't mean to denigrate. It's a wonderful tradition, a wonderful idea. But the point is, they're not as much. Ha- a guy who says, "Well, I went to ninety meetings in ninety days." I say, "Yeah, you know, great." Uh, I, I, usually, in my experience, very little happens in that ninety days because we're like pipes. You can only get so much water through a half-inch pipe, you know. And I was a half-inch pipe at first. And I was tell tell my wife she was talking. To, we had my sponsor and his wife down from Canada here a couple weeks ago. And, and she was saying so and so that calls and I mean you, you should tell him such and such and I said honey I said you can only get so much water through a half inch pipe and she said well make a pipe bigger <laughs> <laughs> put some pressure behind the power <laughs> yeah and then the pipe will <laughs> so we have to we have to stay in kind of touch with where we're at and where they are and, and God takes care of all this mysterious process so the first thing is pray like the the Dickens, and then look for answers. It's like the woman who came by this farm that was so beautiful, and she said to this man, you certainly have a beautiful farm here. And he says, I do. And she says, God has certainly been kind to you. And he says, he has. But he said, you should have seen this farm when God had it all to himself. <laughs> <laughs> so I want you to pray as though your life depends on it because it does. I want you to work as though there's no God. Okay, we talked about paradoxes. There's a one point. One more question. Yes. I just wanted to say, God speaks to us in many ways in this program, and uh, Nancy goes to our Tuesday night actor group. This past Thursday in our camp group, we had a newcomer who was a woman, and she's looking for sponsors. So there we, yeah. Okay. Thank you. You know what a perfect demonstration of what I'm saying. You know, it, it's there for us always. We just have to be willing to ask and seek. And we'll find it. It's there. And somebody can say to me, Jess, I can't, can, I can't believe that God is anything like the person that you described. In fact, when I first got the point of what Vince was saying, I could have any kind of God I wanted, I felt guilty. <laughs> and then I felt very wrong. How can this God be this ideal good God that I'm thinking about? Why, God is God and that's God. I know. Well, who is it that knows? My stupid, distorted mind knows. 
I wasn't interested in, in a, the theological rendering of it because I could distort everything. Like in my little Baptist church I went to as a, as a boy. What, who did I see in that Baptist church? I saw the hypocrites. Why did I just see the hypocrites? And not the immense love that was... Here, nine out of ten people were just loving the heck out of me every chance they had. But I was focused on the hypocrites. Why? Who's the bigger hypocrite in that church? This guy. Okay. Now, I want you to reflect in our break uh, time. Uh, I, we'll have a little bit of guidance time at the beginning of the next session. Are we on the right track? Because I've got a, I got a ton of material that I was going to talk to you about. But... Um, uh, we need to, so we need to assess our, our, our path here. Thank you so much. I love you all. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.